One of those things as a dad that I get excited about and one of those things that motivates me is when I get to talk to my kids uh, and, and they, they have these spots in their life that connects with me. Like I'm like, oh, that's me in them. That's really cool. And, and that gets me excited. Like my son the other day, Jonathan, said to my wife, you know, he was working really hard at getting his grades. He's like, why is it you want, why are you working so hard at your schoolwork? I just love that you do. He's like, I want to be good at everything. And that was like his mentality. I'm like, wow. That sounds like me as a kid. That's what I wanted to be good at everything. And I talked to my, my sons, and then sometimes I'll say, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And well, Jonathan always wanted to be a builder. I think he watched too much Bob the Builder, but he always wanted to be a construction worker. That's literally what, you know, you're like, great, that's cool, awesome. You want to be, and we would drive through LA on our way to the zoo or something, and he, would, he wouldn't like be like, oh, cool, look at the animals. He was like, look at what the builders made. And you'd see all the freeways and all that stuff, and you're like, that's so cool. He's amazed with the world. Now, you ask him now, what do you want to be when you grow up? He's like, I want to, I want to be a reptile keeper. I'm like, okay, that changed. But um, my son, Nate, he's the one who's always said, you know, Nate, what do you want to be when you grow up? He says, I want to be a pastor. You're just like, oh, that just gets me right there. I love that you want to be a pastor. That's why you got to work hard at school, son. You got to do all this stuff. He's like, I don't want to work hard at school. I'm like, yeah, you got to work hard at school so you can make sure you get that job. And then you can move. He's like, no, dad, I want to take over your job. And I don't ever want to leave the house. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Never leave the house. He's like, yeah, I want to live here forever. I'm like, come here. I know it's hard to leave. It's okay. And I later I get with my wife. What does he mean he doesn't want to leave the house? And 18, that stuff's on the lawn. Here's your tickets. Go to the military, find a university, find some friends and get cheap housing, but you're gone. I'm not paying for a 19, 20 year old who's eating me out of house and home. No way this ain't happening. That's my rant in the background. Unfortunately, it came out once and he started crying. So, uh, as I'm comforting him, I'm like, it's okay. One day we all leave. It's, it's, it'll, it'll be all right. No, but honestly, I remember when I left my house. I remember when we let Teeny leave. Teeny had stayed in our home for a few years, and she took off to the mission field. Do you remember what it was like to leave your home, the emotion of it all, the, the intensity of saying goodbye? Maybe you let some of your children, you've seen your children go. You got to cut that umbilical cord. That's an intense moment. And I'm maybe making light of it like, here's your stuff on the lawn. Maybe that happened to you. But it, it is actually one of those moments that's difficult, whether you're a father or a mother, because what you're saying is, I've trained you, I've raised you up, and now I'm sending you out into the world. Let's see how this goes. This is the same emotion that is happening in the text we're looking at. Jesus has walked with his disciples for three entire years, pouring into them, teaching them, pointing them, showing them examples, being that guide. And now he has turned to them and he's sending them away. The disciples are distraught. Imagine you spending three years with Jesus, spending in, day in, day out, and then you get to the week of the Passover and you're marching into Jerusalem, everybody's cheering and celebrating that Jesus is the Messiah. You're thinking to yourself, this is awesome. He picked us. We're going to be like his military commanders. We're going to be like the Caleb's and the Abner's. And we're going to have like our names famous for our victories and battle. This is incredible. We're going to take over the world and everything is going right. He's rebuking the leadership. He's doing these things and it comes Passover evening and they're, they're remembering Moses marching people out of Israel, out of Egypt and Israel being formed and thinking, this is the day. And Jesus turns and says, I'm leaving you. I'm going away. 
You guys are going out into the world, and I'm leaving you. So Jesus has now spent these last four or five weeks in our messages kind of laying out his plan and comforting his disciples and what they are going to be facing. And the disciples are distraught, especially since Jesus just told them, it's not that you're going to take over the world. Actually, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogues, and the world's going to kill you. And maybe last week you walked out of here kind of like, Boy, that was a great sermon, Greg. I feel really depressed and bummed and like they're going to fire me and kick me out of things and there's persecutions everywhere. And I understand that there can be a sense that that kind of enhances their feeling of just the mess that our culture is in and maybe even kind of depressing a little bit as you're maybe fighting cancer or somebody in your family is fighting some kind of disease. Or maybe you're staring at some financial troubles or even some marriage troubles or troubles with your kids. And this world is just adding on pressure. You've, you've found something on your computer from your kids or you've, you've discovered something going on in their school or because it's summertime, they're just out doing things and you're going like, I don't want them there. Whatever is happening, there's a pressure in this world and there are trials and troubles that we all go through. And Jesus saw this in his disciples. He saw how upset they were. And so he simply reminded them. He said, hey, I'm not saying these things. I didn't, I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But I'm going away to him who sent me. And, and I can tell you guys are all messed up. None of you are asking me where I'm going now. In fact, nevertheless, I'm telling you that I, I, I've, I'm saying these things and sorrow has filled your heart. So now he shifts gears. He says, I want to I address that sorrow. He only has a little bit of time to sum up the rest of his messages. He's about to be betrayed. And so he sums it up in one final sentence. It's in the last sentence in John chapter 16, verse 33. If you want to look at this, it'll get you prepped up. But John 16, verse 33 reads this way. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, troubles, trials. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is his message to his disciples. Guys, I know this is burdensome. I know this is difficult, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And from there, in a sense, what he's done is he will have laid out two very strong encouragements for us as a church, two encouragements for us to bank on in the middle of our trials to remind us that he has overcome the difficulties and the troubles of the world. And so if you want to look with me, just flip your page back to chapter 16, verse 7. We're going to go from 7 through 33. If you don't have a Bible, they're available under the seats. Go and grab them from page 902 and those Bibles provided, and we'll be with each other looking at this stuff. So Jesus is now going to give them two very clear encouragements. His first one is an advantage, and it's clearly that Jesus says, hey, I've give, I give you the advantage over the world with the Holy Spirit. And what he wants to tell us is that there is in the middle of your trial, in the middle of your struggle, don't get broken and depressed. I have something for you. I give you an advantage. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he starts right off. Just, we'll just pause right there. And he says, guys, I'm going to send that helper. Now, a couple weeks ago, we clarified who this helper is. The Greek word is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. Notorious for translations. We kind of talked through all the different ones that are out there. You can go back to our podcast to check that out. But we landed on the fact that the, the Holy Spirit, honestly, is just another Jesus. He walks with us like Jesus. He dwells with us like Jesus. He challenges us like Jesus would challenge us. He's always with us like Jesus Christ would be with us. God's presence is here. 
And so Jesus is saying, this is your advantage. If I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't be with you. And I kind of step back and go like, well, what does that mean? Why, why can't the Holy Spirit be with us if Jesus sticks around? That is, you can't have Jesus and the Holy Spirit at the same time? You know, because I think most of us think of this like maybe Jesus is like part of the WWE and it's the tag team time. You know, he's like, boom, and the Holy Spirit jumps in the ring like, got this, you know, and he has to get out in order for the Spirit to be in. No, that's not like that at all. Although I'm very curious. I wonder what the Holy Spirit would look like as a WWE wrestler, you know? But here the Spirit only comes because of what Jesus does when he goes. See, there's an inability for you and I to have a relationship with God. There's a distance because of sin, because of our moral corruption and the brokenness that we've created. There is an affront that we've done to God, and so we can't be near God. Jesus has to deal with that by going. So he takes that sin on himself. He bears that corruption on himself so that there is now a right relationship with God. Now the Spirit can be in and with us. If he doesn't go do that, there is no Holy Spirit. And that's what he's claiming. That's what he's stating. So now that we understand this, he goes on. Here's why it's an advantage to you in this world. When he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, it's, the word convict there is the sticky point. Because for us, in our American lingo, uh, conviction, to be convicted means, oh man, I feel guilt. I feel guilty. Holy Spirit's showing up to make me feel guilty. God's coming to make me feel guilty. Actually, while that's a piece of the pie, it's more like the Holy Spirit is showing up to be a lawyer. He's going to now present a case. And it's as if the lawyer is sitting down with you and he wants to draw out these lines of evidence to convince you of your guilt so you can do something about it. So this is a preliminary time before the trial. And he's shown up to say, here are these three lines that I want to convince you that you will be ultimately in court convicted of. You will be found guilty of these three lines. And this is what Jesus is saying. The Spirit of God is out there in the world and he's active, bringing about, a, trying to convince people of three kinds of evidences. The first evidence is this, our sin. The Holy Spirit is trying to capture our attention to convict us that we have sinned. And some of you, you may actually understand this. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote it in this manner. He called it the hounds of heaven. In a sense that, that God was just pursuing and wouldn't give up and kept going after and going after and going after, revealing, convicting, and pulling out sin. And he's trying to show you what you're doing. He knows that thing that you've done, that you won't tell anybody, that you won't share. It, it does. It causes you discomfort. He knows that thought. He knows those implications in your soul. And he is there needling them, poking at them, trying to reveal and convince you this is your sinful state. And so he says, but you've got a problem because you don't believe in me. Look at verse 9. He says, I will convict them concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So right now, he may be working on you, but unless we see our sin and admit it and have somebody who bears our sin, we won't escape the conviction of guilt. Now, I get this one. For me, this is what the Holy Spirit did to me when, before I became a Christian. Now, I had like, said I was a Christian when I was 10, and kind of, I kind of abandoned my faith and abandoned my morals and stuff roughly around my sophomore and junior year of high school. And during that time, I was kind of giving into whatever I could possibly do to get some kind of 
connection and acceptance by the people I'd always spent time with, whether they were friends, whether they were just the other kids at school. And slowly but surely, you know, first to try to get this girl to like me and then to try to get my friends to like me, I just gave into the drinking and and the pot smoking and all the different stuff that was available. And I found that, yeah, I got more popular. Yeah, I got more people in my life. I had a lot more friends going on. And, but every single time, every single time I would get high or drunk or whatever, I would have this overwhelming sense that this was wrong. This was just morally wrong. I was doing something that was harming myself, harming people, regardless of whether I visibly saw it or not. It was a constant realization that this, this was inside of me. And I would go home at times and I would like confess, oh, I'm so sorry, God, I did these things, planning to do it the next day. And yet the conviction was constantly there. The, the constant reminder, being convinced of my sin, it was that convincing that led me ultimately when I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was willing to bear my sin. He was willing to take and carry it away and cleanse me. That made me go, I need this. Right now, he may be trying to convince you of that sin so that you would do something about it. You see, Jesus bore that sin on the cross. Like a sponge, he absorbs our sin away from us so that it is dealt with, and God punishes it there. And Jesus is willing to receive that so we wouldn't. He wants to cleanse us of sin. He doesn't want us to stay stuck and mired in addiction and messes like that. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're being convicted. Maybe you're like, no way, man. I'm a pretty good person. I don't really feel that guilty about sin. Well, that's why he's trying to convict you of the second thing, righteousness, our own righteousness, that we think we're good. Some of, and I'm not saying you're not good. I, I'm, I meet people all the time, and they're good people. I mean, they're not Christians, but they're good people. They care about their kids. They support their families. They do things that they, they're sacrificial in ways for people. They, they love their friends, and they do all kinds of stuff. I mean, this, this is a good person, and they tell me that all the time. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Now, I have a problem when somebody has to tell me they're a good person. Why or who are you trying to convince that you're good? Good people don't need to convince other people that they're good people. If there is a sense in you that you need to convince people you're good, or you're, there is a sense in you that you need to convince yourself that you're good, it means that you don't feel good enough. And that is exactly what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, listen, your righteousness doesn't stand up. See, the Pharisees, they walked around, they were claiming like, look, we're righteous, we're amazing, we're good. We are the ones that history will follow. All of you people, you know what the problem with you is? You're on the wrong side of history. This is modern-day Pharisaism speaking to us all, telling us when we're moral and when we're not, telling us when we line up with their cultural values and things. I get that. But there are plenty of people who feel good and stand on their goodness. And when Jesus shows up and he poked at that goodness, it made people mad. And so it says that Jesus isn't going to be with us anymore in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. He says the Holy Spirit now is going to come and poke at people's self-righteousness. He's going to get in there and convict you. And you know what? That conviction right now may be in you. You may be wrestling right now that you're not good enough. You feel like this legalism, you, got, you actually may be proud of yourself and you don't even see it yet. 
You've been coming to church faithfully all your life. You do your prayers. You read a Bible, but you don't think you need Jesus Christ. You actually think you, gotta, you can do something to save yourself. You feel like, hey, I've got this name that I hold to. I'm good. I've got values. And God says, yes, you do. But inside you know you're not good enough. Some of you know you're not good enough and you run around seeking a relationship with God. You've tried Eastern spirituality. You've tried secularism. You've tried self-help books. You try, maybe you're here now trying Christianity out. Maybe you're thinking about trying another religion because you just doesn't, this doesn't work. If you're using the terms like that, it's the Holy Spirit convicting you that you're standing, trying to stand on your own righteousness. You're trying to do it in your own way. And that is God saying, look, he's going to lay out all this line that you needed Jesus to cover you. You're not good enough. You need Jesus' goodness to cover you to be right with God. Nothing else stands. And so he says, if you don't have that, you're not good enough. And that will ultimately convict you in that court of God. But maybe it's not that one. Maybe you're struggling with a different one. Maybe he's convicting you of the world's judgment. Notice what it goes on to say. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now that doesn't mean like the president or the the Roman Caesar. It meant Satan. Satan and the, the devil was considered the ruler of the world in the sense that he was the head of the malevolence, the head of the rebellion against God. And this demonic figure, this, this spiritual being, does influence people. Now, it's not silly and like, oh, I'm possessed by the devil and he's running, the, you know, he's running Cuba. No, that's not how this works. They're subtle. They work with thinking. They try to take over mentalities with thought and emotion. And so we could get into the depth of what that means, and one day maybe we will as a series. But right now, the point is that Jesus has defeated and convicted the devil. The devil is going to be convicted and put into hell. Now, here's the thing. He says, where the leader goes, so does its followers. So this world is condemned. Now, you think, what does that mean? If you're being convicted of this, you probably have a problem with evil. You hate the genocides. You see them. You know about the sex trafficking and it drives you crazy. You see and hear about the racism around you and you need to do something about it. Why do the poor get poorer and the rich get richer? This world is messed up. What's going on? And maybe you've even said, I can't believe in God because look at all the horrible evil that goes on in this world. And that actually is God himself bringing conviction. He's trying to convince you of something because listen to what you've said. You're right. This world should be judged and God agrees and he's bringing it. He just hasn't done it yet because he doesn't want to judge us with it. See, if you studied justice long enough, you know all of us have been engaged in injustice. All of us have been a part of it in some way or another, unwittingly or willingly. And therefore, some of us are trying to rid ourselves of our injustice because we participated in it too much. It's become the cause that we stand in that it doesn't erase the influence you've made. And we will all stand with the world condemned, judged, if somebody doesn't take it for us. And the problem of evil is a desire that this world would be judged rightly, and that's exactly what God will bring, but he's waiting because he doesn't want to judge us. Instead, he wants to judge Jesus for you. 
And so he brings these three lines of evidence to call us out, to convince us that we need Jesus Christ. We need to be forgiven of our sin. We need to be right with God by his goodness. We need to escape the judgment by him taking it. And what he is doing is trying to wake us to our need. And if we are willing to reject him, then you will stand with these lines of evidence against you in court. Now, for those of us who have received Christ, I want you to hear me for a second. This means God's working with your family, in your neighborhoods. He is bringing these convictions about. It's our job to go out there. The world hasn't overcome Christ. He is convincing and showing them that they may be convicted. He's already working that they may either repent or in the end, they will not be able to stand against God. And so he's given us this advantage. In fact, he's given us more. With the Holy Spirit comes another advantage. You get the end of the story. A lot of people run around going, well, well, I'll get out of the judgment. I'll I'll escape. I'll I'll make it through. I'll I'll do some trick with God. Or we've made a a deal, him and I. You know, whatever it is, the difference is you and I as Christians have been given the knowledge of the story. Look at what he says in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. He goes on, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. That's things of the future. He'll go on to say he glorifies Jesus and that the Father has everything that the Father has, he'll declare to us through the Spirit. This is a summation statement to this. The Holy Spirit's going to give you and I the information about how it's going to end and all these pieces that are coming. We know that in the New Testament. What you and I have received is the writings that, G, that the Spirit of God inspired to the apostles, and we get what's going to happen in the end. You get that in Revelation. Now, cryptic language, difficult to see, but there's other spots as well. Here's the summation of the end. You guys ready for this? Here's, my, here's how it all turns out, every piece of it all lines up, and I'm going to lay it out quickly. Jesus wins. That's it. That's that simple. Jesus wins. There's not going to be some assembly of Avengers that rises up to beat Jesus. There's not going to be some great amount of American military might that goes against the aliens and beats Jesus. You know, this, uh, every human story is the apocalypse is coming and we overcome the apocalypse. That will not happen. Jesus will ultimately bring the judgment. He comes and he will not be defeated. He wins. In the middle of all of the overwhelming sense of this world, he wins when it comes to death because those who follow him will be raised from the dead like he was raised from the dead. Those who are facing suffering and their disease will come into a time where there is no disease. You who are sitting and struggling with people around you will come to an age when there is no sin and we won't struggle with people any longer. Guys, Jesus wins. And we get all of this information from the Spirit of God who is telling us he's redeeming things. We don't think about heaven enough. We don't contemplate the promise you've received enough. And so in the middle of the trial and the tribulations of life, we forget what he's procured for us, what he's saved for us, what he's promised us, and that is ultimately ours. A renewed universe in the presence of God without sin. And that drives us to want that for everyone. Nobody wants anybody not to have that. Amen? And so, 
Jesus gives us these advantages. He's sharing with us things because he knows in this world we will have trouble, but he has overcome the world. This is our take heart moments. The second encouragement then is this, that Jesus gave us a joy that can't be taken away. Now, this is a little bit harder to explain, but I want you guys to see what he's saying. Look at verse 16. He goes on, in a little while you will see me no longer, and again, a little while you will see me. And now, verse 17 through 19 is the disciples being confused about that sentence and the author getting caught in talking about that confusion. So we'll just say, they were confused, and Jesus says, I see you're confused, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, the, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. There's a permanent joy given to us. And what he's saying is that sorrow that you have now will happen because I'm going to die on the cross, be buried in the tomb, I'm be dead for three days, and then boom. I'm going to come back. And when you see me again, you're going to rejoice. You're going to have a joy. See, it's important to note this. The Christian joy is founded in the resurrection of Jesus. You guys know why I always push you to understand why the resurrection has happened. Not only is the resurrection the key piece to our faith being real, it's the key piece to you having the joy in the faith. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then all of the other promises are true. And I'm not talking about, hey, yeah, I know that Jesus rose from the dead. I got that. Cool, man. Prove it. I'm talking about you realize it comes to your head and you say, my goodness, Jesus in history, the true history, this history that you and I experience right now rose from the dead in a Jewish context, which means that he didn't sin, which means there is a God, which means that he has given you these promises, which means that everything that we believe is true and real, as real as the seat you're sitting on. When you come to that conviction, when you come to that reality, what happens is there's joy because your promise of heaven is real. And the promise that God dwells in your life is real. The promise that hell is not going to ever touch you is real. The promise that you are being transformed is real. The promise that he takes your sorrows and your suffering that you're currently in and flips them to joy is real. Everything that we're reading about isn't a fictitious or a great religious idea. It's the fabric of reality that we sit in. And if we can get to that point and understand that, they can't take that joy from you. Lock you up, shove you in a room, torture you, do what they can. They can't steal the reality that Jesus, 1900 plus years ago, rose from the dead. You can't take it away. It's historical fact. Now, this is where the joy begins. And so I want you to see how it's applied. See, when that joy sit, settles in, suddenly, even in your suffering, you're reminded in the text to rejoice. James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in the first century, said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then that steadfastness has its work. It makes you strong. It brings you character. In fact, what's interesting is Paul picks up the same line of thought. He says in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance 
produces character, and character produces hope. And that hope does not put to shame. Now, this isn't like suffering produces endurance, oh, and I got character now. Oh, I hope something happens. No, hope is like UPS hope, right? You've ordered something on Amazon, you see it's coming, and it's coming that day, and you're waiting on the window going, are they here yet? That kind of hope. Guaranteed, it's coming hope. It may not come in the hour or the day you think, but it's on its way. Hope. And that's and because you are being shaped into the kind of people that heaven is about. See, God even does the judo on our own sufferings. He grabs them and flips them over and suddenly what was horrible and the world looking like it was overcoming us suddenly becomes something that's shaping us and making us more ready to be in the presence of God. So the world can't overcome you. God even uses its attacks and the suffering to shape you. That's what the resurrection does, just as he used the very death of the cross to save us in the resurrection. He will use the difficulties of this world to shape us to live for Christ. Now, some of you guys right now, you're thinking, well, I don't know how that brings joy. I get it. If I had this founding, okay, but I don't feel joyful all the time, Greg. I mean, I don't really have this like, yeah, I'm excited. In fact, I can tell because all you guys are real quiet. It's like, I'm not happy. At least I don't express it. Inside, I'm jumping, Greg, I swear. So I get it. But what I want you guys to see is that sometimes you need something to fill your joy. Notice how Jesus continues. He goes, from, he goes on, he says, look, you have sorrow now, but I, will see, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, in the name, or ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you'll receive, that your joy may be what? Full. I've said these other things in the figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you'll ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So he says, look, God's going to answer your prayers. Not because I'm going to ask him, because you loved me, you can ask him directly. You're going to ask my name and I'm going to answer your prayers and that's going to fill up your joy. And this is, a, this is the key piece. Joy and prayer life come together. Jesus says your prayer life and your, and your joy are, are intimately connected. In fact, our joy is filled by God's answers to prayer. God likes to answer prayer. He likes to give good gifts to his children. Matthew chapter 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God likes to give us good things. He likes to answer your prayers. Too many of us have heard too often, prayer is not this list of wants and you go talk to him. It's not only that. Yes, there's joy and adoration, but it is that too. You ought to have a prayer list. You ought to be asking God for the things you need in your life. You ought to be going to him. Otherwise, where are you going to turn to? Probably your credit card, because that provides pretty well sometimes, doesn't it? And that's why Jesus said, hey, look, you can't serve two masters. You serve either God or you serve money. But when you serve God and you ask God for things, you're going to have a prayer list. He's going to answer. I'll give you a simple example. Early on in my marriage, 
Tressa and I had worked pretty hard to get to this place where we'd saved around $11,000. Our son, uh, Jonathan, was, about to be, was going to be born. We just found out we were pregnant. We're like, okay, I ha- you have a little red car with two doors. I have a little, white, a little gray car with two doors. I think we have a problem because those car seat laws and the car seats are gigantic. We're not going to fit a third kid in these things. And so we sat down. We're like, we need a van because we knew we wanted four kids. We're like, we're going to need a van. And so we start looking out there. We're like, well, we need a van. So we dive out there and start looking around and talking to people. What's a good van? Oh, Odyssey's a good van. Odyssey's a great van. Odyssey. We're like, okay, cool. It'd be great to have an Odyssey. So we're like, get online, look up Odyssey. And we go, ain't having an Odyssey. That's $21,000. Okay, moving on. That was used. And we're like, okay, what do we do now? We prayed. We got on our knees. We started asking God. We're like, God, we need a van. We, need, we only got $11,000. We got no money to pay payments. Help us out here. We don't know really what to do. Hey, if it's, and if it could be an odyssey, that'd be great. You know, half joking. Hanging out one day with one of our friends um, and our family. They were over and he does, he, he's in the uh, car business. And we were like, hey, uh, so we're looking for a van. Do you know where we should go? Where should we shop? And uh, we didn't really say much other than that. He says, oh, you need looking for a van? I got a great van for you. We just got it. Um, it it's sitting on the lot right now. I'll sell it to you for $11,000. I'm like, huh? And it's an odyssey. <laughs> and right there, we're like, God, uh, we bought this van. It was great for its time when we, we, we used it a little too far. But the <laughs> different story. But God answered our prayers. And it was amazing. To this day, we look back at that instant of God's provision and just going, holy cow, God, you heard our prayers almost specifically, very specifically. And it brings us joy when we think about that. You know, Greg, that's awesome, but he doesn't answer my prayers like that. He hasn't, I mean, I have these prayers he's never answered. Oh, I do too. I can tell you about the time I'm bawling my head off sitting just in, in, in the bathroom here in the church and in my office here in the church and driving home, begging God to save my mother from the cancer that had a 91% chance of survival rate to only bury her weeks later. I know what it's like to have God say no. But it doesn't change the fact that God says yes. See, it's not what he answers, it's that he answers that shows you he's with you. Yeah, sometimes he says no. And right now, I'm still not sure why he took my mom when he did. I may not know that until I'm in heaven. But I'll tell you what, I've had plenty of times where he said no. I'm amazed that he said no. I had an opportunity to adjunct teach at Biola for a semester. Everything had been lined up. It seemed like God was putting all this together. I was like, this is going to be awesome. Weeks before, I just bought all my books, prepping for my stuff. I get a phone call. Sorry, we got too large of a load. We had to hire a full-time person. We, we can't do this with you anymore. I'm like, I was devastated. This has been one of my prayers for years to get to do that. And it wasn't going to happen. Thank God it didn't happen. It was one of the hardest semesters of my life. In the church and with my family, we wrestled through huge things that year. I would have fallen apart if I had to go down to Biola every week. God sometimes says no because he's a good parent who knows way more about everything than we do. He knows what we can handle and what we can't. And sometimes he says no because he's got a bigger plan that you and I with our pea brains just can't figure out. And so I want to encourage you that it's not what God answers, it's that God answers that shows you he's there with you. He's working with you. He wants to be there. And so here's my thing. 
Look, your prayer life is linked directly to your joy. Small prayer life, probably small joy. But if you have a large prayer life and you see God answering, your joy is going to be growing. And here's how I know that. Because when you keep track of what God answers, it's amazing what he's doing in your life. So I advise you get a prayer journal, keep it up, read through that prayer journal, write down when he's answered and how he's answered, and then get to church early on Sunday. Hard to do, I get it. That's not the easiest thing all the time. Drop your kids off, come in here, sit down, open your prayer journal while the music is playing and take a minute and thank God for every single thing he's answered. It will prep you for worship. It'll prime your joy for the week. It'll set you up to where you know God is with you and he's ready to go and he's acting in your life. And you don't have to fear when the trial comes because God is active and living in your life. He's already flipped things and all you have to do is go to him in prayer. What an opportunity that if we would just keep track, the faithfulness of God would be seen in your life week after week prayer after prayer, day after day, and your joy would be full. Founded in the resurrection, could never be taken from you. God is with you. His Holy Spirit is there, and he's giving you the answers to prayer. Jesus says, take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm with you in my spirit. I've given you the answers in prayer. I've given you the end where we win. My friends, there is a lot of trials we're going to go to. In fact, the, the, it finishes off in the chapters. are like they go, the disciples go, oh, we get it. You're speaking clearly now. And Jesus goes, really? Because you guys are all going to abandon me real soon here. And I'm going to be all by myself. But the Father's with me, though, so don't freak out. And then he ends it. Now, I've said all these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He has overcome those things in your life. Take heart, he has risen. Take heart, he is with you. Take heart, he loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and women here today that you would allow them to be here to hear all that you have for us. And I ask that you would just enable us and strengthen us now to be a people who trust you and who walk with you in this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.